My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Last year, there was shocking news in the American Christian society. You probably heard that 111 American United Methodist clergies came out and declared that they were homosexuals before their general conference. Some of you may wonder what coming out means. To come out means to not keep something secret anymore. To come out of the closet is where the term actually comes from, or in this case, to tell the world that an individual is open about their homosexuality and not hiding it anymore. So the news about 111 priests from one denomination publicly announcing their homosexuality was indeed shocking. Why all of a sudden did these priests decide to announce that they were homosexuals? They came out so that they could request removing articles in the United Methodist Church's Charter of Laws regarding banning same-sex marriage and banning inauguration of homosexual clergies at the General Conference. These coming-out priests made an announcement through a letter saying, We accuse United Methodist Church for forcing us, priests, to hide our sexual identities. While we have sought to remain faithful to our call and covenant, you have not always remained faithful to us. By requesting to hide our sexual orientations and identity, we couldn't bring our full service to you. As long as we do this, you must gladly affirm our gifts and grace us to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world and the very places you send us. Therefore, United Methodist Church has no right to instate the law of resisting God's calling. And that is why lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgenders, and queers should be welcomed among the believers because in God's eyes, they are God's creation rather than as issues that cannot even be solved by the limited law. What do you think of their assertions? If we listen carefully to their statement, it might sound like this. God called us who are coming out today as homosexuals, and we want to be faithful to God's calling to live as homosexuals. However, the United Methodist Church is not admitting the fact, but disturbing our calling by establishing the laws that are against God's calling. Therefore, such laws are wrong. These priests think that because everyone is created in God's image, everyone should be welcomed in church. And if the United Methodist Church allows this, we can be used as disciples of Christ who can be used to change this world. It may sound right or it may sound wrong. What do you think?
Let's look at Genesis chapter 3 in the middle of verse 1. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, let's jump down to verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the scene where a serpent entices Eve and where the serpent lied to Eve. However, not all of the serpent's statements are a lie, and this is what makes him so crafty. Listen to it saying, Did God indeed say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? It is true God had forbidden Adam and Eve from eating fruit from a certain tree in the garden. But God did not say not to eat from any tree. Rather, He said to eat from every tree except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus called Satan the father of all lies. From the beginning, He lied, and that is why He is an expert at lying. He has had centuries of practice. Satan knew exactly how to tempt a man. He does not tell a 100% pure lie, but he knows that the power of lies becomes great by blurring the line between lies and truth. In Hebrew, shall die is mut tamut. God told Adam that he will surely die, that he will mut tamut. But the serpent told Eve that she will not surely die. The serpent changes God's truth by simply adding not to mut tamut, and even falls into temptation. But what was the reason for her falling? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 explains the reason. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. After listening to the serpent's lie, the fruit seemed good for food, a delight to the eyes and desirable. Although she heard that God had forbidden them from eating it, Eve disobeyed and ate the fruit because she became greedy after listening to the serpent's lie. Moreover, she did not stop there but gave it to Adam to eat with her as well. She also invited Adam to sin.
hands according to his word according to his riches in Coming up next is sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Choose to Live Part 1 based on Deuteronomy chapter 6. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have that word, and I hope you do, or maybe somebody around you does who you can look on with, Let me invite you to open with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Deuteronomy 6 is a chapter that contains some of the most famous verses in all the Bible. And before we read it, we're going to read the whole chapter, but I want to to set the stage. So just as a reminder of what we read, or if you're visiting with us or not been reading along, here's, here's what we've read to this point. So we started in January with the first book in the Bible, Genesis, where we saw God call a people to himself, called the people of Israel, starting with Abraham, then with his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and God promised to give them many descendants and give them a land that he would settle them in. But at the end of Genesis, the people of God had not yet taken possession of that land. In fact, when you get to the next book, the book of Exodus, they are living in a foreign land, Egypt, and they're slaves there. What happens in Exodus is God miraculously brings them out of slavery in Egypt. He brings the Israelites to Mount Sinai where he initiates a covenant relationship with them. Basically, similar to how we might picture a marriage relationship where God commits himself to Israel and commits to bring them into the land he's promised to them. And as he commits himself to them, he gives them his law, which basically describes how the people of Israel will relate to God in the land they're going into. And so that's why we have the next book we have in the Bible, Leviticus. It details the law that God gave to his people. And then after Leviticus, you've got the book of Numbers that opens with the people of God journeying toward the promised land. But right when they get to the precipice of it, they get afraid and and they turn away from God. They don't believe that God's going to give them victory over the peoples and the nations who are in that land. So they turn back. And God, in his judgment of them, sentences his people to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, basically until an entire generation passes away and a new generation comes on the scene. They will be the ones who will go into the promised land. Now, the leader, from, leader of God's people from Exodus through Leviticus into Numbers is Moses. And so the scene we come to in Deuteronomy is Moses standing before the people now once again on the precipice of the promised land. They'd wandered for 40 years. An entire generation had just about passed away. And now this new generation was ready to take the land. And so the book of Deuteronomy records how Moses recounts God's law from before as they prepare to now enter the promised land. So picture it like this. I'll use an analogy that may be familiar to many of you. Just think college football. So in college football season, a team gets together on Sunday or Monday at the beginning of a week to come up with a game plan for their opponent the following Saturday. And that game plan guides them all week long. But then on Friday night, the team assembles back together and says, okay, we're going to look over the game plan one more time just to make sure we've got it. So that's what the Israelites are doing. Moses, head coach, saying, okay, 40 years ago, God gave us this law that was to be our guide when we came into the promised land. So here we are. It's game time. You're about to go into the land. So remember the game plan. What that means is, for the most part, there's really nothing new here in Deuteronomy that we haven't already seen in the Old Testament. This is not new information as much as it's 
a review of old information that God had already given. The word Deuteronomy means second law. So it's basically a restating of the law God already gave at Mount Sinai, but this time in a new way as the Israelites preparing to go to the promised land. So the book is structured around three speeches that Moses gives to the people. Basically, it's sermons. It says they're preparing to go into the land in which he outlines God's law to them. Moses was a prophet, which means he was God's spokesman. God revealed his word, his will to Moses, and then Moses communicated the word, the will of God to his people. So that's the setting behind what we're about to read. Now, let me pause here for a second because I can see it on your face. Some of you are wondering Okay, thanks for the Old Testament history lesson, uh, David. What in the world does that have to do with us? Maybe wondering, like, David, are you so out of touch with our lives in the 21st century that you don't realize I've got this going on in my life, I've got that going on in my family, I've got this going on at work? And you're sitting here talking to me about Moses and the people of Israel standing on the plains of Moab a few thousand years ago with your seminary Old Testament history stuff. Like, why does this matter to me today? And I am glad you have that look on your face. And you're wondering what the answer is to that question because what this book recounts is a record of the way God relates to his people. And as a result, what we're about to read has everything to do with the way God relates to you and me and us in this room. I can't think of anything more important to talk about over the next few moments than the way God relates to you right where you're sitting. So what I want to do is I want to show you Four primary commands that we read in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is filled with laws and statutes and commands from God. But I want to summarize the book by looking at four primary commands. And along the way, I want us to think about how these commands to these people on the edge of the promised land thousands of years ago help us understand our lives, our families, our work this week. So let's start by reading. So hear the word of God through Moses to his people. On the edge of the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great food and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, 
And then you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Oh, there's so much here. And what I want, we're going to turn to a bunch of different places in Deuteronomy. I want to give you a picture of the whole book, but it's really summarized here in Deuteronomy 6. So this one chapter summarizes four primary commands. You might write them down in the blank space that you have in the worship guide that's intended there for notes. So number one, love the Lord. Love the Lord. This is the first command. And it's the primary command from God to his people. Love the Lord. Verse 5, you shall, this is a command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So from the very beginning, see that God intends to relate to his people on the basis of love. This is the title of the devotional we're using that accompanies this Bible reading over these two years. You see it on the screen behind me, for the love of God. And one of my prayers for this journey that we're walking through as a church is that God might instill in us, in you, in me, a deeper, higher, wider, truer love for God. More than you love your wife or your husband. More than you love your kids or your grandkids. More than you love your job or your home or your possessions or your achievements or your reputation or your safety or your security. More than you love your own life, that you would love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus said later in the New Testament, one of those places that references Deuteronomy, this is the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you love God? Right where, right where you're sitting, and do you love God? I mean, I mean really. Not, not do you love his gifts, because God has given many, many gifts to us. Many, many good things in each of our lives. But if we're not careful, we all fall into the temptation of loving the gifts more than we love the giver. And God knew this was a temptation for these Israelites. Amidst his promises, of he thinks he was going to give to them descendants, land. He knew they would be tempted to get focused on those things in such a way they would forget him, which is why he says what he says in verse 12. Take care lest you forget the Lord. Do you notice that tendency in your own life? We need to constantly remember that the greatest gift God gives us is not our spouse or our kids, our friends or our family, our health or our wealth. No, the greatest gift God gives us is himself. He is his greatest gift to us. And a relationship with God revolves around supreme love and affection for him alone. No one, nothing else. Whenever we give affection or attention to someone or something else that God alone deserves, the Bible calls this idolatry. 
Deuteronomy calls this idolatry. It's exactly what God is warning about here in Deuteronomy 6, verse 14. You shall not go after other gods. Verse 15, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Now that's not a picture we usually associate with God, jealousy. For that matter, jealousy is not a, an attribute that we picture positively at all. And there's good reason for that. For jealousy in our lives is most often wrong. It's often driven by pride or covetousness or insecurity. But there is a good sort of jealousy that's driven by love. Which is exactly what we see in God. God is not insecure. He knows that he is infinitely good. And he loves his people so much so, so that he wants them to experience his good. And he knows that when his people wander after other gods, they will experience evil and destruction. And he wants to keep his people from that. Remember, God's covenant with his people is like a marriage relationship. I, th I think about my marriage. I love my wife over here. I want her good. And she and I both know that God has designed our marriage and our affection for one another to be good. To find goodness in showing affection to each other. Which means that I'm jealous for her affections. And even the thought of her giving her affections to another man is not good. Consequently, anyone or anything that threatens to steal her love from me as her husband will be met with the strongest of opposition. Is that clear? <laughs> this is good, right? That's the way marriage is supposed to be. This is the way our relationship with God is supposed to be. He's infinitely good. He's infinitely loving. And so he calls us to love him, for in so doing, we will experience our greatest good. Love the Lord. Now, who is the Lord that we love? Who is this God that we love? And Deuteronomy gives us a potent portrait of God and his many attributes. But reading through Deuteronomy, one attribute seems to stand out or maybe summarize all the others here. You might, might write it down in your notes. Deuteronomy makes clear that God is all sovereign. He is all sovereign. And that may be a word that you're familiar with, it may be not. We heard it shared in, in testimony just a second ago. But the reason I use that word sovereign here is because it emphasizes, this is a word that emphasizes God's power and authority over all things, including other supposed gods. This is one of the clear themes in Deuteronomy. You see it here in Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, there's only one true God. There's no one like him. And Deuteronomy emphasizes this over and over and over again. So let's start turning. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Look at Deuteronomy 4, 32. So in the beginning of chapter 4, we, we see God forbidding idolatry, the worship of other gods among his people. And here's the reason. He says in chapter 4, verse 32, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or is any God ever tempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Huh. Just, just think about what God is teaching us 
about himself in Deuteronomy. God is showing us that he is sovereign. Think about his sovereignty, his power, his authority. He's sovereign over all history. So verse 32, he's the creator of the world. All things began and begin with him. We won't turn there now, but chapter 10, verse 14 says that the Lord belongs heaven and the heaven and heavens, the earth and all that is in it, all the earth and all the heavens belong to God. Chapter 10, verse 17 says the Lord is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. I I love that verse because one of our ministry partners in India, whenever he prays, he always quotes that verse, Deuteronomy 10, 17, to God. Every time he starts to pray, he says, Oh God, you are God of gods and Lord of lords. A fundamental confession of faith in the one true God by a man who lives and serves in a land of a million gods that are being worshipped all over the place in India. And every time he prays, he prays, You're God over all these gods. You're Lord over all these lords. God's sovereign over all history. But then take it a step further. Bring this down. One of the clearest themes in Deuteronomy is not just the sovereignty of God in general, but the sovereignty of God specifically in the way he saved the people of Israel. So God is sovereign over all history and God is sovereign over his people's salvation. Did you hear it in verse 37? He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. And brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart. Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Did you hear that? In his sovereign authority. Deuteronomy 4.37 says, The Lord God over heaven and earth chose to save the people of Israel from the nation of Egypt. Which begs the question, why? Why did God love Israel's fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like he did? Why did he choose to bless their offspring? Why did God choose to bring them out of slavery in Egypt? And the answer is clearly not because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or the people of Israel in Egypt deserved it. God makes that clear from the start of this book. Go go back to chapter 1. Keep turning to the left there. Look at how the book starts. The whole book starts with Moses recounting, we'll look at verse 26, we'll start in verse 26, recounting all the ways God's people had turned away from him. In verse 26, he's recounting what happened at Kadesh Barnea last time they were at the edge of the promised land. He says, remember this, you would not go up, verse verse 26 says, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he's brought us out, in the land, out of the land of Egypt to give us in the land of the a- hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way, all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Then in verse 34, God talks about his holy anger toward his people. Verse 43 reiterates how stubborn the people of Israel were, unwilling to listen to God, living in rebellion against God. And this continues throughout the rest of the book. This is the first chapter. And remember, this is Moses speaking to the people, but he's speaking God's word. This is God saying to his people, I want to make clear from the start, you don't warrant my blessing. It's like God's putting it in their face over and over and over again. In Deuteronomy 9, 6, you don't have to turn there now, but when God was talking about the land that he was going to lead them into and how he's going to bless them in it, he makes clear why he's not leading them in. He says, No, therefore, the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Then he goes on in the rest of the chapter to recount how stubborn they've been. This is strange, isn't it? Just over and over and over again. Hey, just want to make sure you, you haven't forgotten. You, you don't deserve my blessing. So God's going out of his way to make sure they know what is not the reason for God's blessing in their lives. Which then leads to the question, well, what is the reason? Turn over to Deuteronomy 7. You've got to see this. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's start in verse 6. 
Right after what we read in chapter 6, we read these words, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. It's set apart, holy. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did God choose to love the people of Israel? To lead them out of slavery in Egypt. It wasn't because they were righteous. They were rebellious. We've seen that. It clearly wasn't because they were a large nation. They were a small, puny nation. But despite these things, the sovereign God of the universe chose to set his affections on them. Why? Clearly there was no merit in them. All of this was grounded in God's mercy toward them. He loved them. That's the only explanation Deuteronomy gives for the people of Israel's salvation. Why did he love them? Because he loved them. This is the pure, sovereign choice of God to love them. And these are words that are used over and over again in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10, 15. The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples. Chapter 14, verse 1. You are a people, holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, I want to be clear. There is mystery behind God's sovereignty in his people's salvation. Because we know from all the scripture that God's sovereignty does not deny or thwart human responsibility. All men and women everywhere including all men and women in this room, have a choice in their lives, in our lives. We choose to trust in God or we choose to turn away from God. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But suffice to say at this point, this is, this is important. No man or woman will ever be able to stand before God and say, I didn't trust in you because you didn't choose me. No. No one will be able on that day to blame their rebellion against God on God. We are responsible in this room, every one of us, for whether we trust in God or turn away from God. Yet when we trust in God, there's also no denying that it's God's sovereign grace at work in our lives to bring us to that point. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Why are you a Christian? You might say, well, because I have repented and believed in Christ. And that would be true. But how did you know that you needed to repent and believe in Christ? Well, the Bible told me so. Well, how did you even know about the Bible? Well, somebody shared it with me, with my parents or my family, friend. Maybe a co-worker, maybe a complete stranger. Well, why did that person in your life tell you about Jesus when two billion other people in the world have not had anyone tell them about Jesus? And even among other people who have heard about Jesus, why have some of them not believed in Jesus while you have? Is it because you are smarter than they are? Better than they are? Maybe more righteous than they are? Stain. He washed it white as snow. 
Listening to Unity in Christ, the English Hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you. So, if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, Please feel free to email us at askhsgm@gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul podcasts on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. Following is a program called "If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me." Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston. I'd like to welcome you to our final episode in the series "If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me." In our previous lessons. We share that disciples learn to be the same as their mentor, to follow his thought, words, actions, and still convey all of his teachings to others. And it's what the disciples did. After dying on the cross and resurrecting on the third day, Jesus spent forty days with his disciples and went to his heavenly Father. During that time, he was with his disciples. And Jesus gave instructions to entrust to his disciples the kingdom of God. Let's read from the book of Matthew, chapter sixteen, verses twenty through twenty-eight. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. 
When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In reading the passage, do we know what Jesus asked his disciples? He told them to make disciples of all nations. As Jesus instructed and molded his disciples, now he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations in the world. A good disciple is one who imitates the teacher. So when Jesus says to make disciples of all nations, it means that he wants us to teach others to be disciples and in the process of teaching, the student would see and hear from Jesus directly. So Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Let's look at our generation. Do we see disciples of Jesus? Do we see those who look as if Jesus is in them, following his thoughts, his words, his actions, and all of him? What about you? Do others see Jesus as a mentor in your life? If we are not seen as disciples of Jesus Christ, resembling Jesus, then we did not keep his words at some point in our lives, and we would lose our Christian reputation. Jesus clearly told us to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, to teach them to observe all that he has commanded from Scripture. We keep his command in baptism and to teach the gospel of Jesus but we barely seek to keep his word. Teachers as well as learners struggle to keep his commands, and this is not doing what Jesus tells us to do. We must do all that he commands of us. We must be obedient to his word. Jesus' disciples had heard and accomplished all of his commands. Wherever they went, they baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and taught and kept all that Jesus commanded. His disciples made other people disciples of Jesus, and it has been handed down for over 2,000 years. Now, as disciples of Jesus, we will pass it on to the next generation. We can learn about what we must do in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-8. to 8. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. This is part of Paul's letter for the Christians in Thessalonica. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and became a disciple of Jesus. Then he went and made disciples of Jesus whenever he met people. Christians in Thessalonica were his fruits, in this letter, we can see how Paul had made them disciples of Jesus. He taught them as Jesus commanded. However, we can see that he not just taught them in words, but showed them to keep the living commands of Jesus. Paul said, When we were with you, how we lived for you. What happened to the Christians who became disciples of Jesus through Paul and Thessalonica? In verse 6, it says that they received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The reason they were in joy in their difficulties is because the Helper gave them joy. So they became an example of Paul and the other disciples who received Jesus. 
they became imitators of their master. In verse 7, Paul said that the Christians became an example of Jesus and his disciples in Thessalonica and became an example of all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to become disciples of Jesus. This is what it means to become an example of Jesus Christ. The word example is tupos in Greek. The meaning includes a seal, model, portrait, sample, and printing. In other words, a person who receives Jesus Christ in their lives and becomes one of his disciples would have the likeness of Jesus sealed in their life. In this generation, where can we find disciples of Jesus? Where can we find the resemblance of Jesus in people's lives? Can you find disciples of Jesus in your community, in your church? If you're able to find them, then follow their life, which follows the image of Jesus. If you're not able to find them, then try to model your life around Jesus by reading the scriptures in the Bible. Following Jesus is not a simple religious life. It is to deny oneself, take up one's own cross, and follow the way of Jesus. Then, you will be the example of Jesus to others. Now is the time to make your decision. During the previous messages, we looked at the cost we must pay to follow Jesus, walking the narrow road that leads to him, and the reward we can receive when we finish our journey. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to be a disciple of him? If you haven't made a decision yet to follow Jesus, I sincerely hope that you will. Make a decision to follow Jesus Christ in this race of faith that is unfolding in front of you. This concludes our final message in the series, If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. May God bless you and your family. Still I will fall.
111 homosexual clergies who came out asserted that every human has to be welcomed in church because all of us are created in the image of God. What they say is true. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 clearly states that God created man in his image. And it is also true that every sinner should be welcomed in church because church is a place for sinners, not for the righteous. But the fact does not prove that God created man as a sinner. And the fact that the church ought to welcome sinners is true, however. The church should not neglect correcting sinners in their sin. God created man in his own image. Yet man was tempted by a serpent and decided to follow his own lust rather than following the word of God. Since then, humanity has been living according to their own desires and have become the slaves of lust and sin. But Jesus Christ, who is God himself, came to earth to defeat the power of sin and to invite sinners to be new creatures. As born-again believers, Jesus recreated us to live following the Holy Spirit who guides us to have joy in living according to God's word rather than following the evil spirit which impulses us to follow our own desires. The Bible sternly tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible firmly tells us not to be deceived and also not to be tempted. Whether or not this world condemns adultery, homosexuality, or worshiping other gods as sin, those who agree to them or who perform such sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. As we have seen from Genesis, Eve was tempted and ate the fruit out of her lust and also invited her husband to sin. She tempted him to sin along with her. This is the horror of sin. Romans chapter 1 describes in detail such character of sin. And verse 32 tells us, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Through this verse, we recall Eve and today's sinners. Although they know it is forbidden by God, 
they follow their own greed and invite more people to sin. Church is a place for sinners. However, it is not a place for sinners to continue in their sin. Church is a place where sinners are gathered to be washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ so that they can be created anew and be clothed with the garment of righteousness in Christ to live as righteous people. Church is a place where sinners realize their sin and confess it to become clean through repentance rather than redefining certain things as not being sinful because the world agrees it not to be and going completely against God's word in the process. I am not telling anyone to hate or accuse the homosexuals, and although the type of sin is different, they and we are all sinners. Therefore, all of us ought to be washed of our sins by the blood of Christ. But denying the sin, which God defined as sin, means that an individual has no willingness to be cleansed of his or her sin. Why would an individual feel the necessity to have his or her sin forgiven if he or she did not feel they were sinning in the first place? Please do not be fooled by them. God does not lead us to sin. God wants us to turn from our sin. Please pray that the believers will not be deceived but to stand strong on the word of God so they can distinguish the lies from the truth. My hope is that you can stand firm on the truth, the word of God. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Have a wonderful week, and God bless. Shout!